Jerry of Devo. Hey, this is Bob Two of Devo. This is Jeff from Devo. Oh, ha, ha. Listen up, guys. This is Bob One from Devo. Greetings, beautiful mutants. This is Mark of Devo, and you are listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan, eighty-eight point three. Probably the most important radio station in the whole planet. So do not change the channel. Just listen to, stay where you are. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm so happy to have in the studio, Rebecca Sherm is here. Rebecca, welcome. I'm so happy to be here. I love this show. <laughs> well, thanks for coming coming down to the studio, braving the cold weather. And um, and on this wonderful occasion, because your, your debut novel, Unbecoming, mm-hmm. um, what a great title. I guess we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, <thanks. laughs> is about to launch um, your first, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first reading and the book launch will be at Literati on January 27th. January 27th. So mark your yeah. calendars, folks, because Rebecca Sherm will be there with her novel Unbecoming, Literati, 7 p.m. 7 p.m. And I'll be, I'll be reading to um, all of these friends and teachers and colleagues who have supported me so much throughout writing this novel. And I just, I expect that reading to feel something like a wedding. I'm going to be so overwhelmed emotionally, um, but I'm going to get through it. It's and sort be of good. a rite of passage in some sort of yeah. a way, right? Yeah. Or maybe. maybe. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um I, that's the reading that I, when I think about the tour and all the readings, I just see sort of that one over and over again. And really, I just want to thank people for an hour, but I'll, <laughs> I'll read from the book too. Well, you know what? Before we go any further, I'll just read your short bio that's found on your website. And so, everyone, you can check it out. You can go to Rebecca Sherm's website. Um, and learn more about the novel. We're going to be talking about it for an hour, so I guess you're going to learn about it here too. So don't go away just yet. Um, but without further ado, Rebecca Sherm is a graduate of New York University and the Helen Zell Writers Program at the University of Michigan, where she currently teaches. Her work has appeared in Fiction Writers Review, Jezebel, The Toast, and The New York Times. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
So again, welcome, uh, Rebecca, and congratulations. Thanks. Um, So this book, so you mentioned that there are going to be these people at Literati at your your, uh, book launch Mm -hmm. and the first reading um, that have been important in this whole the process when when you came to michigan for the program was this was unbecoming already um was it a germination of an idea or did you already have some chapters or what was your no what was your yeah i didn't have anything um i was i was writing short stories at that time and i knew i wanted to write a novel but i had a very different idea for what that novel would be and um i realized over the first few months here that I kept thinking about writing my own version of the Laurie Moore novel, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, which is one of my favorite novels. And I and I just kept spiraling back on this idea, and it got sadder and sadder because I realized I didn't want to write my own version of Who Will Run the Frog Hospital. I wanted to write Who Will Run the Frog Hospital. And what's the point of that? And I sort of realized I had to let go of this idea that I was going to write like a, like a novel can be a cover, like a song can be a cover. I had to let go of this oh. idea of covering Laurie Moore. <laughs> because, oh. you know, I mean, that's something that graduate students do is they cover Laurie Moore. <laughs> well, get, well, she's amazing, friend of the show, yeah. but also like amazing. Yeah, right? yeah. So I it once I let go of um, that first idea about you know, the the breakup of a girl friendship. Um, this idea for Unbecoming didn't feel so much like a single idea as a single idea as it felt like um, a stew that I had been sort of unconsciously brewing for a decade. I love that, a stew. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've heard writers talk about um, all of the influences and the, you know, particulate matter that you pick up out in the world um, in terms of quilt squares and in terms of um, like weaving strings into a nest. Um, But for me, it's so muddled and unconscious that it's something more like a big, ugly, messy stew. It's it's sort of bubbling a bit (laughs) though too. So it's active. It's it's fluid. Yeah. And I guess um, around December of my first semester here, the end of my first semester here, was when it started to assert itself. It started to sort of burble. <laughs> and I and I started it, um, I guess I started it November, December, when I got here. And yeah. so it was sort of this, in the back of your mind, you, well, you've been writing the stories, um, but you want, you did, you wanted the novel in some way. You wanted to yeah. sort of enter into the landscape of that. Yeah, I never thought that I was... Um, <sighs> Short stories are so difficult. Yes. They're so they're so difficult. And I knew even well, then and not to say that the novel was <laughs> Oh, I think writing I I think writing a novel is easier for really? me than writing a short story. I've heard who was it? I it might have been Jennifer Egan. Someone um a writer I love was talking about the difference between writing short stories and writing novels, and she was saying that writing a short story is like, I, I hope it's Jennifer Egan, um, is like pulling off a perfect card trick. Um, and that, that um, it has to be perfect. There's no room. Right. There's no margin for error. And when you're writing a novel, you can go over it again and again. You can just keep combing it out again and again, and it only gets better. Um, I think, and you can want, spend years wandering around in the dark with it. Whereas I have a lot of short short, uh, short stories that are, I just don't think they're ever going to grow up in that same way. They're a little. I needed to write them in order to write a novel, but they're not. They're not what I'm here to write. 
So, yeah. so you're thinking, cause it seems like your next project is, is it called beta? Yeah. That... Yeah. And, and also a novel then. Yes. I, I think, um, I, I think I'll probably only write novels from here on out. Well, no, don't, you don't have to. Don't. I know. Let's not like, no. Yeah. Not, not, I shouldn't no, say that. No, right. I won't let you say it. No. <laughs> right. Not on living writer. No, no, no. Well, here's the reason though here. And it's not the reason that you think or that people might think the reason is that to be, to write short stories, I think you should be really, truly splendid at writing short stories. And there are so many writers I know and love who are extraordinary at writing these short stories. I am not extraordinary at writing short stories. Let They need, they need to write the stories, right? It's hard enough to get people to read stories. Let's please have people only read extraordinary stories. <laughs> And I can give them a hundred recommendations. <laughs> well, well, well said. Yeah. Well said. But sometimes I was just, I guess the reason why I was saying mm-hmm. that, Rebecca, was more just because, because you never know what That's something true. needs to be or what it, what it wants. Like, That's and, true. And so, yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. sure just meeting you this few moments anyway, I'm sure you would realize what you'd let it be, whatever something was going to be anyway. So, oh, and this book and the next book have, they were, um, they've both been exercises in metamorphosis and transformation and they, they change shape formally and they change shape, um, thematically all the time. It's like all I can do to keep up with them. So what was, what's the origin story of unbecoming? Was it an image that came to you? Did you watch to catch a thief? Did you, <laughs> yes. on the, like the film I, and I'm then, glad, um, this is, this is embarrassing. Um, I'm glad that you asked about it, though. It's true. Um, So I, and I think a lot of people know this about me now because I've been writing about it lately, but I grew up watching Alfred Hitchcock movies and especially um, the three movies he made with Grace Kelly. As a child, I was obsessed with Grace Kelly, like to to an unnatural degree. Um, I don't know how natural it is for a nine-year-old girl to be obsessed with Grace Kelly. Um, But I was reading her, I read her biographies um, and... I think there was there were a lot of reasons that I was drawn to her um, and her seen through the eyes of Alfred Hitchcock in particular. But what happened is that I loved Rear Window so much and I watched it, I don't know, probably 50 times between 9 and 15. And I took up To Catch a Thief and I watched it the same way, but it's not a great movie. It's it's very stylish and it's very pretty and it's very funny, um, but it doesn't. There's nothing about it that's going to wrench your guts out in the same way that Rear Window does a thousand different ways. Um, and I, looking back on watching To Catch a Thief in my childhood, I wonder if I was watching it over and over again because I wanted it to be different, um, because I wanted it to do something that it wasn't doing. And the reason that I think this might be the case is because in the long period of time that I didn't watch the movie, say from 14 to 26, I totally misremembered it. I made up a different version of the movie. Um, In my version of To Catch a Thief, that I really thought was the real version, Francie, the Grace Kelly character, and Roby, the Cary Grant character, run off and become jewel thieves together. And that's how I thought that the movie should end. And so that's how I remembered that it did end. That's how I remember it. <laughs> well, I'm really sorry to spoil it for you. No. That is not how it ends. Right. Um, here's how it ends. 
Uh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, for this movie that came out in 1955. Right, in of years ago. Uh, Francie and Roby uh, settle down and become law-abiding citizens, and Francie's mother moves in with them. <laughs> I mean, and she's a spitfire, but... She's the best character by far. <laughs> yeah. But I think, like, so in, this, in that space of, um, you know, b- before I finally watched it again, I was writing this book, and I was writing... The, the the Hitchcock film that I wished I had seen or that I believed that I had seen and I was throwing all of this other stuff into it and, and all trying to understand all these psychological knots but then um, I remember telling my agent that the book was like to catch a thief and she on the other end of, of the line um, I just sort of hear this what what <laughs> <laughs> And I, I watched the film with my husband that night, um, and I was so embarrassed because I, I'd been running around saying, "Oh, it's like to catch a thief." It's like, and it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's the movie I wished that it had been. <laughs> and that is actually lovely, lovely. Yeah. Because mm. <laughs> and Alfred Hitchcock is long dead, isn't he? Yeah. So it's not like he's listening right now. No. He's like, oh, Rebecca. <laughs> this woman in Michigan doesn't like my film. Exactly. Yeah, that's not how he talks. <laughs> it was a very good impression. <laughs> um, that's that's true. He's gonna. I don't know. You don't want to get on the wrong side of Alfred. Oh no, um, it but, sounds bad. Well, you know what? We'll 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 take a short break after um uh just one more th- just another um just to mention to folks again, Literati mm-hmm. on January twenty seventh. Rebecca, you'll be there. Rebecca Sherm will be there with her novel, Unbecoming. It's gonna be great. That the cat to catch a thief that should have been. Or so. <laughs> yeah, that could be one of the many taglines, right? Okay, I'm T Hetzel. Today on the program, Rebecca Sherm is here. Um, we've you've got living writers. We've got techs in the engineering seat. Thanks for all you listening out there. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Meet you downstairs in the bar and her your rolled up sleeves and your skull t-shirt. You say, why did you do it him today? He'll sniff me out like I was tinkering. Cause you're my fellow, my guy. Hail me, yo, Stella, and fly Like I knew I would I told you I was trouble You know that I'm no good Upstairs in bed with my ex-boy He's in no place but I can't get joy Thinking all you and the final throw and this is when my puzzle goes Outside to make your tips and pants up You say when we marry it Cause you're not bitter There'll be not of him no more I cry for you on the kitchen floor I cheated myself Like I know I 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Rebecca Sherm is here. Rebecca, writing writing the novels, choosing the music for today's program. <laughs> We've got her, her debut novel, Unbecoming, on the table. And Rebecca, why these songs that we're hearing oh, today? Well, these are um, all five of these songs are songs that were in some way an inspiration for the character, for Grace. Um, when I would try to warm my way into her head any way that I could. Um, but they also, of course, became my background music as I was writing. Um, I know that a lot of writers prefer to write with instrumentals or something like that. Not me. I like to write with um, music that I know really well. And I'll listen to I, I, I'll listen to Amy Winehouse all day long for a week because I just sort of get into a, a zone with her and then I need her to keep going and it just becomes part of the environment. And the feel. Yeah, it? it helps me with the mood, trying to get the mood of the book. Um, yeah, that, that Amy, You Know I'm No Good is my favorite Amy Winehouse song because I think that, and it's so important for that character, um, She's she's telling she's telling someone that she's bad and she means it, and I think that we see this trope, especially in movies and in popular music, of women telling uh, people, especially men, that they're bad as some sort of little trick, yeah. um, or as to if make they things more exciting, right, right, as if they didn't really mean it or as if they were only a little bit bad. But I think that when Amy Winehouse sings that song. Um, I think that she she's trying to get someone to believe her. And so much of writing this character was about exploring someone who um, the redemption for her is that she learns to accept all the badness in herself, which is a very strange kind of redemption for a book. And it's something that I think some readers will struggle with, but it was really the reason I wrote it. I mean... And when did you... Yeah, when did you know that? I... I knew that right away. I mean, it sort of ties in with that "To Catch a Thief" idea that um, I wanted to write a woman about. I wanted to write about a woman who was very charming and who was raised, you know, in the sort of southern polite environs that I was raised in. Um, and I knew that she needed to get away with it in one way, but not the other. And readers are, and I include myself in this group. Readers are trained by all the novels that we read and the movies that we watch. Um, to expect narratives where when people do terrible things, they either reform, and that's the redemption. Yeah, and or, the transformation. Yeah, the transformation. Um, I always think of um, recently the the movie American Hustle, which I really loved until the last 10 minutes when, spoiler alert, oh. <laughs> they settle down and open an art gallery together. <laughs> oh. I haven't seen Sorry. <laughs> It's still a great movie, um, but don't watch the last ten minutes. Yeah, you should just, just stop it. Just feel it. like it's not genuine. Like they just yeah. like muscled something in there that wasn't. That was what the, that was more palatable. And so there's there's either that redemption um, through through becoming good, or acting like you're good, or being punished. And I wanted to write a book about a woman who did bad things, and it didn't have either of those endings. And that was so important to me. Um, how do you pull a character through that and have the punishment that she feels come from within? Right, because there's cost. There's great cost. There's great emotional cost. But, you know, in real life, everybody doesn't settle down and open an art gallery. 
<laughs> and invite their mother-in-law to move in. Um, I think the truth is a little dirtier than that. Yeah. You darker. Know, darker. Yeah. Definitely. Like that uh, Fiona Apple song, Criminal, which I remember hearing for the first time when I was, I don't, how old was I? I was probably 11 or so. I'm not sure. But hearing that song when you're when you're an 11-year-old girl is terrifying. Um that kind of sexuality and shame that she has in that song, um, I remember being really frightened of it um, and attracted to it at the same time. And um, I think that was that was something else that I was trying to sort of deal with in the novel, um, that point in a young woman's life when her own sexuality seems threatening to her. And confusing, yes. Yeah, I don't confusing. Know confu- yeah, but in a way that's... Mm-hmm more because it's dangerous yeah the world is telling you that you possess some quality before you understand what it is it's alarming (laughs) (laughs) yeah so when you okay there's a so many things this is a this is great the this character uh, grace that that you create um is it also sort of a nod to Grace Kelly? Then, oh, of course. Too? Is that um, yeah. was that intentional or just yeah. subconsciously? Okay. I mean, it was it was intentional as a nod to her, and it was also intentional as a sort of um, sort of a way to to kind of prickle the reader about how we think about the idea of grace and what grace means. Um, I think it sort of sets you up to expect a redemption. And yes. my book, what I'm arguing, and I, and I really think the book has a lot of arguments in it. And one of them I think I'm making is here is a kind of redemption that maybe we haven't considered. The redemption of just knowing yourself, um, even as awful as she is. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. To that. <laughs> yeah. So how, um, so it seems like you, so from what you've even said here, um, Rebecca, it's even, you knew something about grace from the very beginning and you had intentions for what you wanted for her. Yeah. Her so when she started building sort of be, like, well, not building, that's not, but when she, when she started, when you've got further into mm-hmm. the pages, like you've spent, it's November, it's December, mm-hmm. it's the next January. So you're spending this time with this character. Yeah. Right. Um, well, so you were okay. You were like, she's a re- unreliable narrator, too. You're... In the beginning, she was even more unreliable. Well, the first line really yeah. shows us this. And that became important. Um, I remember workshopping the first maybe 40 or 80 pages um, in a novel workshop. And I don't recommend that. I think that you should <laughs> hold on to your novel longer uh, yes. and keep it private longer. And maybe don't workshop it just right away. Um, but, you know, it was what I was working on. And I had to turn in something and that was what I had. Um, but at that point, the novel was still told in the first person. Um, and that because of that, Grace couldn't tell you that she was a liar. And it was doing something gross that I didn't that I didn't intend, where the, the it was tricking the reader. Um, it was as if Grace was tricking the reader, and in a book where um, I wanted the reader to eventually understand her, it there needed to be some sort of strange triangle where Grace could trick the reader, but I wouldn't, or um, the reader and I, the narrator, would try together to get to the bottom of her. 
Right. Yeah. I, we needed another, we needed a, a voice of truth to just sometimes rein it in a little bit. And then I moved it into third person. And it was after that workshop? Yeah. Or was it? Yeah. And it was because of that workshop also that um, that line about Grace being a liar just moved up further and further and further until it was the first line of the book. Um, it's like, how fast do I need to tell readers that she's a liar? Well, um, I think early on I did it at the end of the first chapter, and then I would move it up and move it up and move it up. And then finally mm-hmm. I realized, wait, this is the most central piece of information in this whole book. Right. Just lead with that. Just yes. start with that. Yeah. And how bold is that, too? Well, I was really, um, in my first line was really inspired by the first line of a book that I love, um, A Judgment in Stone by Ruth Rendell. And... Um, A Judgment in Stone, I would say that this book, Unbecoming for Me, has sort of three patron saints, three guiding lights. Who are they? Um, A Judgment in Stone by Ruth Rendell, um, which is a very chilly murder mystery where she tells you everything in the first sentence. The first line of that book is, Eunice Parchman killed the Coverdale family because she could not read or write. That's some first line. Yeah. She tells you who did it and who she killed <laughs> and pretty I mean, she tells you every and why. And then the book becomes a psychological study and the, the suspense of it is just, what, what does that mean? And that's what you were more interested in yeah. as well for your book. Exactly. Yeah. So who are your other patron saints? Um, or the books, rather. The books, yeah. And it's funny because it's not really writers, it's just these books. Um, the second one is Endless Love by Scott Spencer. Um, which I think you're going to love it or you're going to hate it, but I think everyone should try it. Um, it's very dear to me. I will warn you that it has something like a 75 page sex scene in it that is grisly. <laughs> um, not usually the first no. adjective. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not, I don't know. It's not the English patient. Um, but, um, that book is, um, about obsession and, it's about um, a young man who is obsessed with it. They're, they're teenagers, and he's obsessed with his, his his girlfriend, but he's also obsessed with her family. And Grace's um, obsession with Riley's family in the book is different. Is different from the one in Endless Love, certainly, um, especially because Grace's obsession is really centered on his mother, Mrs. Graham. Um, you know, I would, I would. To me, that's the most profound love story in the book. Um, And so Endless Love was a way for me to... uh, Endless Love sort of showed me that it's okay to obsess and to to show... to, to allow your character to obsess in the way that she would, to circle back on things, to, um, to argue with herself. Well, and that is so human. Yeah, that's how we are. And then the third one is um, In the Lake of the Woods by Tim O'Brien. Oh, okay, um, okay. And that one so was recommended. So the mur- the mur- the mur- so this yeah. Is- Okay. Yeah. So yeah, and it, that's so funny to say that because all three of these books have major crimes in them. Oh, major. And yeah. I never thought of myself as writing. I didn't realize I was writing a, a crime book at all. Right. That was a total accident. Um, the whole, yeah, yeah. the whole heist. <laughs> yeah, I just to me that to me that's sort of like the scaffolding for the psychological yes. yeah. for the psychological investigation. And so um, it is. Yes, and so yeah. it is. Yeah. And the Lake of the Woods was recommended to me, um, or it was assigned actually in a class here. 
um, by Eileen Pollock when I was a graduate student. Great. A yeah. friend of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, she's, she's uh, my hero. She's great. She's helped me a great deal. And that book is very, um, it's a book that you argue with your friends after you read it about what really happened and what you think happened. And what you think happened ends up being a reflection of sort of how you see the world. And how, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Also such an interesting layer then. Yeah. What do you think? And so it almost sounds like even how people talk about the character, Grace, is in part how they're willing to see the world too. I even early, I mean, it's the book isn't even out yet, and I already get the feeling sometimes that when people talk about Grace, they're revealing a lot about themselves. Right. Yeah. How much of her you can tolerate, I think, maybe indicates sort of a, a di just a, a different levels of comfort or discomfort with um, people telling ugly truths. Yeah, and all of Grace's ugly truths. And maybe also, especially have some gender uh, things happening. Yeah. <laughs> like that yeah. It's the fact that it's a, a female character. I really... That has an ugly truth. I really thought that the likable female characters debate was over. I, I thought that I was going to sort of cruise in after that big wave of debate. Um, that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. Be prepared to surf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And Eileen, I remember Eileen telling me that when she first read a draft oh. of the manuscript saying like, you're going to have a, she, I think she said, you're going to have a wild ride with this. Um, get, get ready. Some people, some people aren't going to go with you here. And some people are really going to love that you went here. And, um, and I mean, that was never a choice that I made because that was always the reason that I wrote the book. Yeah. It's just, it's part of the origin story. Yeah. Right. So. That was never negotiable. And there have been a couple people um, over, I, I remember talking about it early on with my agent, and she just sort of wanted to double check, like, and you're sure this is how you want it to end? <laughs> just, yes. Just keep thinking yes. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Today on Living Writers, Rebecca Sherm is here. Her novel, her debut novel, Unbecoming, um, will be available at Literati and everywhere January 27th. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Rebecca Sherm is here in the studio. We've got Unbecoming on the table with us. You know, Rebecca, would you mind reading some of it oh, sure for us? Because yeah. um, we've been, I don't know. Are you going to read from the first page? I'm going to read from the <laughs> okay. beginning. All right. Because I'm so glad not to um, twist your arm, but um, but since we've been talking about it, that would be yeah. lovely. Uh, this is exciting. I think this is my first, um, this is really my sort of my first public reading. Of the book. This is exciting. It's a living writer, yeah. you know, t- debut as well. That yeah. lovely. Uh, okay. Well, um, thanks for being here. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Okay, this is Unbecoming. Chapter one. The first lie Grace had told Hannah was her name. Bonjour, je m'appelle Julie, Grace had said. She'd been in Paris for only a month, and her French was still new and stiff. She'd chosen the name Julie because it was sweet and easy on the French tongue, much more so than Grace was. The best lies were the simplest and made the most sense, in the mind and in the mouth. These lies were the easiest to swallow. Jacqueline, the boss, had shown Grace to her work table, abutting Hannah's, and where to store her tools in the jars along the center crack, what she could borrow, what she would need to procure herself. Hannah had reached out to cover a jar of picks and pliers. I don't share these, she'd said with a taut smile, like someone forced to apologize. When Grace sat down on her spinning stool a few minutes later, Hannah asked where she was from. Grace was so obviously American. California, Grace said, because most people already had ideas about California. They didn't ask you to explain it to them. Grace hated lying, got no joy from it, and this was how she knew she wasn't pathological. But California satisfied people so easily, even in Paris. Garland, Tennessee, where Grace was really from, was a confusing answer that only led to more questions. Tennessee, Hannah might have started. Elvis, Pequeno, Hillbillies? When Grace had lived in New York, everyone who asked her where she was from followed her answer with the same question. What's that like? As if her journey from somewhere as tiny and undistinguished as Garland had required a laborious transformation. As if getting from Garland to New York City had been some kind of pilgrimage to the first world. Grace had been in Paris for two years now, and she had been Julie from California since her arrival. Her life was conducted entirely in French, another kind of disguise. She and Hannah seldom discussed anything deep in the past, and when the conversation took an unwelcome turn, they quickly righted themselves. Facing each other across their tables, they hunched over their antiques and talked of busted hinges and gouged veneer. Not sorrow or worry. Not home. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. You're welcome. Oh, Thank you. It's, it's so great to hear you reading it, too. And it's so funny, like, funny moments, and then also moments where you're like, oh, they talk about veneer like these moments where you're like Ooh, you know <laughs> what are we gonna learn it should be chilly yeah 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 <laughs> so what was it like then um working with maybe the genre of suspense like what like what sort of planning does that go or are you sort of following the story yeah as it's right or what you know i just i didn't know that i was writing a suspense novel until i'd already written one and so I think I think that I was following the story and I my if my guiding lights were these books that um are in some ways suspense novels then I was certainly influenced by them. And Ruth Rendell of course mostly writes um detective procedurals although A Judgment in Stone isn't isn't one. Um and I think that for me the moments when I felt the greatest suspense as a writer Um, the moments when my heart sort of caught in my chest or when I was worried or when I started to sort of get sweaty as I was writing um, are the moments of emotional 
suspense. Um, there's the moment when Grace runs into Mrs. Graham and her mother in the drugstore, um, and that was very hard. I felt I, I had to sort of get up and walk around outside after that because as, as I was writing it, I sort of took more and more of Grace on. Um, and we're very different. We're as different as we could be, and yet in writing her, I sort of have to... Have it's like she's on my shoulders or something like that. Well, and you care about her. I'm invested in her, yeah. And so that moment, and then of course the moment when Mrs. Graham confronts Grace about the money is the hardest scene that I've ever written. Um, I was very upset by it, and I had to take lots of breaks. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, writers, well, you know, I'm sure that so many have told you that about the scene that was the hardest for them to write. And why that is, and I think it's that moment where you knew you had to, you knew you had to put this character through something really hard, and that moment is here, and you don't want to do it to him. But then you do. You have because to because it is actually the truth of this. Yeah, yeah, and that that scene is um is so important to, I mean that's a, a watershed moment for Grace, um, and in some ways that's what turns it into a suspense novel where we go where we go from that moment. I think that it's kind of amazing that um, that you're uh, that well because I'm picture so now I've got I'm picturing you at your your work table or somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know why I've got a, mm -hmm. an image and it's some nice natural light coming in. Rebecca, you'll be glad to hear. <laughs> that sounds very nice. Thank you. <laughs> anytime, anytime. But but it is this sense of because it's so interesting that this is what we because I was completely not expecting. That I thought you were going to talk about even some moments of like orchestrating plot or like oh. we're going to move her to she's yeah. moved to Prague mm -hmm. and then we're going to we're going to go back in time to look at her grow up with, um, you know, like back in pre high school or, yeah. or so, you know. Yeah. And how do you. I mean, there's that, too. But no, I love I love what you said. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's better. That's definitely yeah. that's glorious. But what what about those most like did you when you were writing it? Was it this sort of a natural structure that happened? No. Or, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> there's nothing natural unless you are naturally a criminal mastermind. There is nothing natural about writing a novel with a crime in it. It is so difficult. Um, and I learned that I have no. I can't be a criminal mastermind. I have terrible instincts for for what to do in the in the moment of in the moment of getting caught or not getting caught. Um, How did you learn that? Like, did, so did you write something and then you're like, this doesn't seem right? Yeah, I would write seem... it and then like a few days later I would read it and I'm like, oh, that that never would have worked. Um, and in the end, what I had to do is I made a giant map. Um, you know, I got one of those huge pieces of paper from Hollanders and I taped it, uh, over, over my table. Um, and I made an outline, an elaborate outline that was color coded, um, with what, what sort of different events were thematically about. Like, well, this is about, um, trust or this is about sex or this is about envy or this is about, um, expertise. Um, and I would sort of code things that way and then go through the model and then I uh, through the model that way with lines drawn between things to make sure that I reconnected them later and um, it got very elaborate and I kept that outline up and used it and I only did it in pencil because I was always changing it until um, about three quarters of the way through the book and then I didn't need it anymore then it, then I didn't have any outlines I didn't have any 
I didn't need anything. I just knew what was going to happen after that. Because you were in it. I was. I was in it. And and at that point, the novel moved so fast um, that I was. I could just run along. Could just run along with it. Um, but all of the all of the plotting of the of the heist um, and moving Grace back and forth through time and space. Oh, that's intricate. That is the. <laughs> but you knew it had to happen in a way. Yeah. Well, because you said actually that for for the early draft, um, the scene that you read for us was actually much later. Yeah. So it was maybe it was some different chronology was happening mm-hmm. then. I tried lots of different chronologies. Um, I did try to tell it straight through, and I have been accused by friends of not being able to tell a story straight through, um, and that may be true. It seems like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't done it yet, but I I could I could I could I know it. Um, <laughs> And I, I mean, I tried lots of different chronologies, um, tighter braids than this one, um, longer, longer segments. Um, and in the end, I think that the thematics of what Grace is dealing with in Paris determined sort of how big the backstory would be uh, in those moments. That if I would try to go with her natural triggers instead of forcing um, uh, well, I've had this many pages in Paris and now we, we need to go back to, we need to go back in time. That's not going to work. That's too artificial. Um, but I would wait and I would follow her in Paris until something happened that would shake her up or that would shake her back into the past and just go with that. So that some of the chapters, um, are, are very different lengths. And I, I just, I had to go with her obsessions or with the way that her mind worked for it to be natural. And when you said that you got to the the three quarter mark of the, is that like sort of the drafting process of it still, or or do you yeah. mean like the novel, like the novel as it is now? Sorry to be now I feel oh, like no. I'm like, um, you're like I have to. Why think about are these that. so specific? No, no, no. Questions. I have to. I I love hearing <laughs> other writers talk about how the nuts and bolts of how they, especially a novel, just because you spend so long with it, yes. like how they get through it. Um, I wrote. The first, I wrote all the way through. I wrote straight through. Um, and I kept messing with the outline um, until the three-quarter three mark, into my third draft probably. Um, so that outline would die and then come back to life and then die and then come back to life with each draft. Um, but my strategy, and I don't remember if someone told me to do it this way or if I just figured out that this was how I needed to do it. Um, Anybody who's starting a novel will tell you, you know, you obsess and loop back on those first 80 pages until you've just beaten them into mush. Um, You can't do that, or I can't do that. Um, I have all kinds of bizarre tricks to keep myself from looking backward. Like keep moving You have to move forward. I have to move forward. Um, I can't look back. I know that everything back is crap, and I'm going to have to fix it all and change it all. But I have to keep moving forward. And then when I would get to the end, I would put the whole thing away. I would not read it. I would put the whole thing away for a month. Um, the first time I put it away for two months. And I worked on other projects. I wrote short stories. I wrote essays um, just to have fresh eyes. And I went through that cycle several times. Um, I would never, ever, ever get to the end and then go back to the beginning right away. Um, that was a surefire way for me to get really confused about. And you just, but you knew that, Rebecca. Yeah. You kind of sensed it. When, yeah. And when did you, when did, was it something like, when did you know to go back to it? Was it because you said a month or maybe even two months, like for distance? I wasn't waiting for a feeling. I had it on my calendar. Really? Like, you can't look at it for 60 days. You can't look at it until September 15th. 
um, I don't have extraordinary personal discipline, so I really have to write things down. <laughs> and then agree with yourself to follow yeah, the calendar. Yeah. That I can do. That I can do. I yeah. think that's a great idea. It really helped a lot. It really helped a great deal. I would see things, um, I would just see things so much more clearly when I went back after a long time away. Um, and I, and I would, and I had an understanding, like I would have fixed this the wrong way. I would have broken this in a different way if I had been up to my armpits in the same, in these same five pages all that time. Right. Cause, well, cause it changes the headspace, doesn't it? Yeah. Cause like that, what we were talking about with that human nature to circle back or circle into something yeah. but that can be, it damages, it makes something not what it is. Yeah. And I would, um, I would always try to, I mean, I, I think I learned this early on because I would try to solve something on page seven that I had forgotten that I solved on page two. Um, I mean, those page numbers are too low, <laughs> but I would just, I would forget even small successes. Um, and I would forget that I had already done something and I would, I would be really worried that I hadn't done that yet. And I needed to do that. And, right. and you've just got to back away. And then, and keep, mm-hmm. keep yeah. going. And then and keep it. going. Yeah. It is because, yeah, it is interesting about the novel because you said that there's, it's not like the short story and what it, what it um, requires of you. Like it doesn't have to be sort of, I don't want to, okay, it is hard to talk about the differences because it's, I was going to say tight as a short story, but it's not that, but the novel, like there can be, there are some novels where there are doors left open that you know, as a reader, when you get to the end, you're like, huh. And it's okay. Cause a lot right. like whatever the main drive of the story is, yeah. but it sounds like that's still some of what you were thinking of is like, there can't these pieces, even in how you outlined it. Yeah. It's just, I think that, um, I think of a, a short story as having mm, fewer edges and the edges are very crisp. The edges are perfect and straight and crisp, but maybe there are fewer of them. Maybe it's a cube. And with a novel, you're dealing with something that's a many, 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 many sided figure. And those edges do need to be crisp, but there are so many of them that you have to give yourself a little bit of a break, I think, to step back and look at it as a whole object. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that does seem to require multiple drafts, too. Yeah. Stepping back. I think Unbecoming went through probably seven. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Today on the program, Rebecca Sherm is here. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. The novel on the table is unbecoming. We'll be right back. The good versions of me I find good things and bad versions of me I don't know uh, It's just versions of me, babe I'm in a nightmare Having a dream I got a question Am I who I see? Oh, I'm at the matrix From battling me I'm dipping all black shadow in me Something undefined Is now taking over me am I to fight me for my own soul I'm saying yes to things that usually know for me I kiss a knee all night and let it have control I do bad 
things The good versions of me I find good things and bad versions of me I don't know It's just versions of me, babe Why do I feel so free When I'm killing me I'm falling to the sky Caught between all the lines I'm in a nightmare, having a dream I got a question, am I who I see? Oh, I'm at the Matrix from battling me. I'm just an all black shadow in me. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Rebecca Sherm is here in the studio with her novel, Unbecoming. Soon you can have your copy of Unbecoming unbecoming in your hands um when you go to literati on january 27th um and a shout out to hillary and mike and john and uh russ and and yeah <laughs> hey everybody <laughs> hey friends they've been they've been so great to me um and hillary and mike were giving me advice um but months ago when i was going to sort of my first trade shows and um helping me out with how i described my book to other booksellers i mean they've just they've been incredible um and i've known john and russ um at literati of course through the mfa program here and um it's just a it's a store full of friends i love that place so it's just again it's going to be a great night january 27th and, and for your book launch and everyone you know feel welcome to go yes i would love and, to see you all there it, yeah Yes, this is going to, and it's going to be one of, well, it's upstairs now, the yeah, readings at Literati. So you'll be able to, there'll be windows. Yeah. You can look out over the city streets. It's a beautiful space. Have some coffee. Yeah. From outside, it just, it looks magical the way that it's lit up inside. It's lovely. And you'll be lit up inside. <laughs> yeah. So that's, Thank you. And, and that's January 27th, everyone. Um, so at the beginning of the show, when we started talking, I said, and that title, it's oh, so great. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about um, how you found this, the right title? The right title. Well, it, you, in the, in the early drafts, it was called We Knew Better. Um, and that's that's when it was sort of more in, in the first person. And I went through lots of different drafts. And I would be really, um, I I was never satisfied with any of my with any of the titles. Um, none of them were quite right. None of them had the right mood. And then for a long time, I got stuck on um, you can have it. After which is which is not the right reference. Um, I mean, it's it's the right reference, but it's not the right feeling. Um, which is after the Philip Levine poem. You can have it. Um, and that poem was the whole inspiration for the character of Alls. Um, I, uh, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And um, I, so I really wanted to name it, I really wanted to name it You Can Have It. I liked how it sounded sort of um, prickly, um, but as others pointed out, it sounds a little defeatist, which the book, which the book isn't. I think it sounds a little, uh, I don't know, dust off your shoulder. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, it didn't have the right, you sort of need the reference. You need that Philip Levine poem for it to, for but, it to make but sense. there isn't an epigram. Is yeah. there? No, Rebecca? but I have, was... um, Grace and all's encounter that poem together. So, but okay. Cause I was, okay. Yes. And that's uh, and that's how I brought it in. That's how I brought it into the book. Um, and uh, and then unbecoming, uh, my husband came up with that. Um, we were sitting there thinking of all these ter- of all these terrible titles, and man, I thought of some real doozies, like really the worst. <laughs> they all sounded like horror movies. Um, but sometimes that's the best to do. I, yeah, yeah. I Wait, mean, can you remember some of the doozies? Oh God! I mean, there's there's something about just like stairs and dark houses and uh, <laughs> it's just bum bum. Yeah, it was all it was all very spooky. It was really bad. 
Um, and then we, one of my friends and I kept coming up with like these gilded puns that were just terrible and like guilt, guilt right. puns. Right. Um, it's just really corny. Um, but when he, your husband said, unbecoming, oh, it yeah. just, it just, I mean, he was, I mean, it's like he sprang up out of his chair and he's like, unbecoming, unbecoming. It means everything. It, it means everything. And that was, that was it. That was it. It was perfect. Yes. Yeah. I really love the title. And I think especially when you were saying about what you wanted for Grace yeah. in this, because, you know, I feel like with that, I've heard, oh, don't do that. That's so unbecoming. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like these, these different voices that, and then this idea of does everyone have to be, have the same redemption story right. and who are right. you becoming? And oh, so it's just, yeah, this wonderful yeah, yeah. Layers um, of meaning. I, I, I love that about it, and I love, I love the way that it sets up the reader to receive the book. Um, this is an unbecoming character, and this is a book about unbecoming. And I think that if you, you know, if you take a second to let the title sort of sink in, that you know what you're in for. Consider yourself warned. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, then I, I just can wish you many interesting conversations ahead with people about this. I'm looking and, forward to it. Um, and exciting to know that you've got another project underway already. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with this one. I mean, in some ways, the next project, um, when I describe it to people, it sounds really different. But it's not. Unbecoming... Um, deals with a lot of sort of familiar tropes, the heist novel and suspense novels and very familiar images that we have from Hitchcock and Patricia Highsmith, um, but trying to examine them in a very different way and look at them from a different lens. And you could say that about my next project, that it's looking at, um, it's looking at genres instead of through genres, I guess. It's having some sort of conversation with those, but it's still about the lies that people tell themselves and the links that they will go to become who they wish they could be. Um, maybe those are, and, and parents and their children and family envy. And those might be themes that I'm working, that I'm working on in my fiction all my life. Um, I'm certainly not done with them. No. <laughs> so, and it's, and in relationship, yeah. like how, hmm. Well, that sounds that sounds very intriguing too. So <laughs> we'll just have to stay tuned yeah. for that. And so you, so this, so Literati is also the beginning um, of the tour. Mm -hmm. um, and so where are some of the other stops in case we've got any listeners out on there? The, uh, on the on the twenty seventh, I'm at Literati in Ann Arbor. On the twenty eighth, I'm at Common Good Books in Minneapolis. Um, and from there, I go to Albuquerque and then uh, Scottsdale and then Los Angeles and then Houston, and then New York. Yeah, um, and then I have, and then I'll be in Dallas in April for something with the Dallas Art Museum, but that's later on. Oh, and that sounds wonderful too, at the Art yeah. Museum. Oh, it's gonna be really cool. What would be, the, what is the intersection with Unbecoming because of the heist itself? Aren't they oh. worried to let you in the building? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they should watch me closely. Right. <laughs> the third novel. Yeah. Or is it a more like a me the first the memoir? memoir. On, my, on my book tour, I start stealing from, from all the museums where they let me They'll read. never suspect it. <laughs> That's a good story. It's been a long-term plan, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, oh. I'm playing the long game, <laughs> the long oh, con. Well, I hope you are. I mean, it just it was it's. I feel like um, it could have uh, if you could have just read the whole book, and I would have been so happy to sit here and oh, listen. So, thank you so much. <laughs> so I hope all my interviews are as fun as this one was. I can't. Yeah, this was. Great. Oh well, you will be. You'll be bringing it. So <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it will be. Thank you. So um, when you're thinking about. Um, because you've kind of given a little bit of, uh, I don't mean this to sound cheesy, but like mm-hmm. this advice, like like about things for people writing their first novels, mm. like moving from the short story and picturing like the the writers out there. Is there anything that you feel like you do wish that someone had said to you about like these years? Well, unbecoming. I had so much good advice. There's nothing I wish that someone had told me because people told me so many wonderful things. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got um, was from Peter Ho Davies here. Um, And he told uh, he told a group of us, don't try to write your second book. Just write your first book. I think there's this idea that if you've never written a novel before, that this novel has to be everything to you. It has to do everything and answer every question that you've ever asked. Um, And he was just sort of saying it's a long it's a long writing life let's take this one book at a time and that gave me incredible permission to let unbecoming be exactly the book that it needed to be and it's not packed and padded with every concern i've ever had um it's very clear in its interests and and i think that that's in large part because of that wonderful advice and when you heard it did it did it res- kind of resonate with you at yes, the time? I felt relieved. Just... I felt this great. I felt <laughs> I felt tremendously relieved to hear him say that. Um, I knew right away. I knew right away what it meant and what it had given me permission to do. And was that even something that um, was that before or after the um, the Lori Moore like oh way after break? okay that's right. I was okay. I was you were deep. already well into the novel. At I that was point. well into the novel, um, and I knew. I knew that it was about a lot more things than I originally thought and was sort of feeling overwhelmed at the idea that, oh, my God, what if it's about everything? <laughs> right. Right. Well, because you're I cre- never finish this because it's about everything? Yeah. <laughs> Unbecoming. War yeah. and Peace. Yeah. <laughs> Anna Coretta. All yeah. sort of wrapped right, up. Right. 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 Yeah. So one book. One book at a one time. One book at a time. Yeah. And then you can and then you can see what it can be and then you see what's next, which yeah. is what's happening. Yeah. Um, and it gives you that that I think thinking that way gives you room to have more ideas along the way and to pursue them and you're not living and dying by how we, how your writing went that day, which is, you know, the curse of all writers and the thing we're always trying to escape. Um that was really, really good advice. I got a lot of good advice. Um just keep going. Don't look back at, at what you wrote yesterday or the day before. If you need to um, select all in your document and turn all of the type white so that you can't see it and then just type forward and you can't even see what you're writing, I do that sometimes because I just can't even stand to look at the words because they're not perfect. And so if I, if I turn them white and I can't see them, I can keep going without being faced with them. And that's gotten me through a lot of tough spots. And it's gotten you... You've got Unbecoming now, your <laughs> debut novel. Thank yeah. you so much, Rebecca Sherm, Thank you, T. for talking with me today. Come Thank back you. anytime. Thank you so much. You've been listening, everyone, to Living Writers. Thanks again to Tex for engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. My name is David Carlson. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 on the dial. We've got technical difficulties here. Uh, the Mac computer is not uh, cooperating and isn't playing our intro music, but that's okay. Um, on the other side of the glass today, on Wednesday, I have Pat Mullen, Kevin Klein, and Jeff Chan. New a newcomer to the stadium, Jeff Chan is going to give us our uh, his insight um, today. And guys, uh, I'd like to start with what happened last night in Columbus, in the wake of the uh, football team in uh, you know in the university toward the south, uh, winning the national championship in football. Uh, the basketball team played the University of Michigan's basketball team.